0: Hey, my name is Ash T. And on this episode of the Dropouts, I have my neighbor, again, a different neighbor, uh, who went from accounts management to voiceover actor. Welcome, Michael Tatum.
1: Hello. Nice to (laughs) to be here. Thank you, neighbor. (laughs) It's good to see you.
0: It's Good to see you. I I see you. I will see you more today than I have seen you all month, probably. This is true. (laughs) And we just kind of pass like ships in the night. Exactly. And now we get to sit down together and talk. Yeah. This is nice. And I I get to find out where you actually are from.
1: (laughs) Uh, Well, I'm I'm, uh, from Dallas, Texas. Well, not Dallas proper. We say when you're from Texas and you're near Dallas, you say you're from Dallas. Mm -hmm. But I'm from a little suburb.
0: North of Dallas, called McKenna, Texas. Okay. Yeah, where m- much of my family still lives, actually. So, did you used to have a southern accent like I did? Nope. Okay. Never. Did you have a southern accent? Uh, yeah, I used yeah. to talk like this. I was, oh, yeah. I was born in Virginia.
1: Oh, hell. Okay.
0: Yeah. See,
1: I got, well, see, I had to develop the accent because I didn't, well, we'll get into that. I had a speech impediment when I was a kid. Oh, and so right. I didn't talk very much. And I, I developed a neutral, almost British, or what we call mid Atlantic Accent wow. because of speech therapy for years. Fascinating. Which has served me quite well yeah. in my career. But uh, What did your parents do? My mother was a teacher mm-hmm. uh, for years. She comes from a long line of teachers. Her mother was a teacher, and back and back and back it goes. I think they all taught. Uh, and my father was, um, they're both retired now. They. Uh, my father was a, a safety director. He was a vice president for a, a, a regulator company. Uh, pipeline regulator kind of stuff, and he was in charge of safety management, and uh, OSHA standards. Very analytical mm. brain, and my mother was also doing some creative uh, strains in my family, especially on my mother's side. But uh, creative strains, okay, yeah, I like that. No, Variants, I, the, mutants. <laughs> <in the foul laughs> well, both my both my, my mother's parents, my grandparents, who for various reasons, I mean, I was an I was an early you know I was an '80s '90s kid, so I was a latchkey kid. Um, so for my grandparents were sort of the ones who raised me because they were retired by the time I was old enough to be a concern to anyone. Mm. <laughs> and they were both, uh, you know, my grandmother had been a teacher for a long time and my grandfather uh, worked for the job Corps. They're both very progressive, civic minded people. And, uh, but my grandfather was a pianist in private mm. no, it was a best kept secret. He almost had a career as a jazz pianist when he was wow. younger and gave it up. And my grandmother was a dancer and almost had a professional career as a dancer and gave it up uh, for each other, as it turned out. Because <laughs> um, the long and short of it is that they met because of their mutual interest in music and the music scene in their day. And um, then they got together and played together all the time. And then uh, then my grandmother got polio and lost the use of her legs. And so she had to give up dancing and went back to school to major in uh, French lit, I think it was, that she then professed. And... Uh, so because she had to give up her career as, as or her dream career as a dancer and go back to school to learn a whole new trade, my grandfather gave up playing piano and would only do it to teach wow. uh, or to do it on the side for family and stuff. So he taught me to play. So I kind of had that. It's interesting is kind of looking at the, the, the sort of framework of, of this podcast you do. And I, I realize that I kind of grew up in this milieu of there was work and there was your dreams and you don't get to do both. That's not how it works, you know, because I was sort of, it was, I always thought the the idea of, I guess I was sort of conditioned uh, unconsciously to think of the artistic thing, the creative, the fulfilling dream path of being kind of a romantic idea that is tragically turned away from by necessity. And that that's the romance of it. You know, my grandfather was an accomplished pianist. He was amazing. No one has ever heard him play. Who's still alive? Wow. There's no recording of it. There's nothing ever. Just my memory, and you know. And that was in a weird way. I've always thought of that as why he was so good, um, because it was just him. He was doing it on his own, just for the, a couple of people—myself and my grandmother—the only people he would really play for. Um, and it was lovely. It was great to to see that. And so I always thought of those things as as. Uh, compartmentalized as private it's like you know you succeed in them in the work so to speak um by not making it your vocation and I, i'm just putting this all together now as i say yeah. it out loud that i realize like yeah to be an artist whatever that means you know the second it becomes your job you sacrifice something uh and and it suddenly becomes work and when it becomes work it loses its luster or it can i don't know so that was, that kept me a long time from pursuing creative stuff as,
0: as uh, a career. Just seeing like your grandparents, how that played out. And did your parents have any influence on your work uh, ethic or anything like that? They say you should pick a secure and stable job. Not really, I so I'm
1: the youngest of two and mm. there's quite a bit of difference in age between my, my older brother and I. And so by the time I was around, I was always a weird kid and so I think I, think I had the opposite experience of a lot of people in my position where like I had parents who were like, whatever you wanna do, that's fine. They were mm. kind of, I don't wanna say they were disinterested, that paints someone an un- unflattering light. And they, they were supportive in their way, but they didn't understand what I was into or really worry about it. They're like, you're fine, it's, it's whatever. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine, just don't be a serial killer. You're like, you know, kind yeah. of thing. And- um, What were you drawn to as a, as a child? Art was always music and, and acting. Um, acting primarily because it's how I found my voice, quite literally. And like I mentioned earlier, having a speech impediment, which was a huge deal. I didn't. I rarely spoke um, until I was about nine or ten, mm-hmm. and you used to have to write a little. had a little, a little thing, well, those little, those little carbon thing, the little, you know, little, little plastic strips or whatever you could write yeah. on and erase it by lifting it off the little carbon pad. I used to carry one of those around so I could write it down because it was so much easier than trying to just stutter it out. And I was very self-conscious about. My so you voice. stuttered a lot as a kid. Horribly horrible Wow um, and uh, but my my speech therapist <clears throat> excuse me my speech therapist found that that if I could... Memorize something ahead of time or study the way other people spoke and listen to them and kind of listen to the music of it Because I had a musical ear, thanks to my grandfather That if I th- broke it down in those terms that I could speak uh, clearly and, and wonderfully in fact I mean, you know, I would give me a monologue and to memorize and I could do it and without a hitch And so she was like you need to get on stage hmm. And like many people in her position, she had ties to the theater and she knew a, a little uh, kids theater troupe that was auditioning. And <clears throat> so I did, and I got the role. I, my first role ever was I was oh, on I'll stage. Agree.
0: I was 10, 11. I think it was 11. So everybody needs an agent or a manager, but it looks like a speech <laughs> therapist. <laughs> can get you into the industry a lot quicker.
1: And the the more eccentric, the better. It's kind of like the King's Speech, you know? (laughs) She was just this weird little British woman um, that would put marbles in your mouth and do all kinds of crazy shit. And it was super fun, um, but she just made me comfortable with my own voice. And to the point where I felt comfortable uh, being on stage, is always funny, I'm so much better, for example, being on stage and talking to an audience of a bunch of people than I am to just, just one-on-one. Like right now, as, as much as I like you, and I do, and you're easy <laughs> to talk to, this is excruciating um, for me. On I can't so even tell. Levels, right? yeah. Well, acting. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but... Something about being in front of an audience because I think that was my first positive association with you can speak This Mm. is what you do and now I'm a voice actor now. They can't shut me the fuck up (laughs) (laughs) But it took a long time for me to get here Uh, I pursued acting as a side thing my whole life Um, for as a young kid. I mean from 11 to my 20s I was on stage a lot every chance I had but I you know did it in between jobs or I would you know also support myself working at a bookstore or doing this and then did you ever want to go to college or anything? I went to college uh, for a little while to study yeah. uh, piano pedagogy, of all things. That was my... other. I literally flipped a coin. From I was like, do fund? I do acting or uh-huh. do I do piano? And I love, again, I, the drive to be a teacher was very strong coming from okay. the teaching yeah. background that my family does. And so I thought, wow, that's a great combination. I could go to piano pedagogy school. And I, I did and I hated it and I dropped out. And then I went back and did like community college and for a little while and did theater again and all this. And slowly the dream of doing anything creative professionally just fizzled out because I was just kind of hitting wall after wall after wall. Did and, you ever like um, the sciences? Yeah, oh, well, I've always liked the sciences. Mm. Uh, music is a very scientific art, especially yeah. if you're classically or or like jazz trained or whatever. That's very, it's very mathematical. It's very analytical in some respects. Um, it's a lot like voice acting, uh, especially what I specialize in, which is dubbing. Which is a little bit. It has to be organic, but there are also very very rigid technical concerns that have to be observed as well. So it's a very perfect blending of right brain, right brain, left brain, and um, music was like that for me. So, uh, but anyway, yeah, I just sort of. You know, gave up on being an actor or a musician or a composer or whatever, uh, anything creative, and just pursued a job and fell into, I started answering phones for an ad an uh, advertising agency in uh, Dallas, FKM, they were called Fogarty Klein Monroe, and um, they were lovely people, I just knew somebody that had, whose dad ran the place and we were friends, and they're like, hey, they're looking for for somebody to run the front desk you know it was a little satellite office of a much bigger company that was based out of houston and so i got the job and i just answered phones which i guess technically my first voiceover gig was answering phones (laughs) (laughs) and then you know being there for a year or so i started just kind of getting i started just sort of helping everyone else with their stuff it was that kind of atmosphere you know and so suddenly they were like well do you just do you want to be in account management. We need the the warm body and we just, you know, you kind of know everything. You know where all the bodies are buried. So we might as well. And so I did that for a while. And it was, it was nice. I think I've always, just by sheer luck of the draw, or maybe a fundamental laziness in myself, I've always just kind of yes and other people. Um, I don't do a very good job of believing in myself, but if someone else is like, you should do this, I'll be like, all right. I mean, okay, if you say so. Yeah. And so I got into account management for a while, and it was lovely. Uh, you know, the people I worked with were really cool, and I miss them all terribly. It's been 20 years ago now. Oh, my God, it's so long. I'm so old. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just weird to think about. But, you know, I worked in that, and it was... I, I didn't like it. I didn't like it. I I, I began to feel as, as my my 30s were, was approaching, you know, that terrible age when you feel like it, it, your 20s, it's not talked about enough how dreadful your fucking 20s are. Mm. Um, no matter where you are, <clears throat> excuse me, in life or what you're doing, like you feel like I don't have it figured out. I'm an adult. I thought by now I would cross a very clear threshold and feel adult and responsible and like I had my shit together and it hasn't happened yet and I'm about to turn 30. And whatever I am when I hit 30 is what I'm going to be for the rest of my life. It's going to be my final form. Time is running out. Like, you feel like it's funny. And that, you feel like time telescoping in on you in your 20s because your 30s are coming. And then 30 hits and you're like, oh, what the fuck was I worried about? (laughs) And, but there was a couple of years there where I just didn't know what I wanted to do. You know, I still did a lot of things in private. I've always been somewhat artistic. So I was writing music, playing. I didn't do acting anymore. And then, out of the blue a friend of mine who i'd known uh just randomly through the guy i was dating at the time who happened to be a voiceover director for this company that was used to be called funimation out of dallas they're the dragon ball people mm-hmm. um it's now crunchyroll and they're like the biggest game in town when it comes to anime dubbing who knew it would blow up <laughs> <laughs> and this is 20 years ago yeah. and you know my buddy uh, chris bevins um you know direct and i thought what he did was really cool but i had no Urge. I had never no designs on him because I didn't think of myself as an actor or even as a creative anymore. I thought of myself as one of those sad people that just goes, no, no, this is what I do in private and it'll mm-hmm. die with me. You know, <laughs> and uh, like so many most like I feel most people have that that passion. That's kind of their private attic space passion. Uh, and that was me. And then he out of the blue one day was like, hey, I like your voice. Do you want to mm. try that? I have you in mind for this particular character for the show we're about to record. Mm. I just think you sound just like the Japanese actor and and you used to act, right? You, It's not that hard. Just do it in front of a mic. And I'm like, I fucking don't want to. <laughs> Actually, so I'm asked by, by fans a lot at conventions. They'll ask me, like, how do you get into voice acting? And I don't ever feel qualified to, 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 to give them the answer because I'm
0: like, oh, do what I did. Just wait for someone to ask you and then say no. <laughs> Worked out for me. Did you feel like when you were in your from eleven to twenty when you were acting? Did you do a lot of accents and dialects oh, at that yeah. time? Okay. All the time. So you'd already had a lot of mm-hmm. practice. Just well,
1: like it, was, being an it actor. was it was part of how, working around the speech impediment. Um, you know, there are things I can do and say in another in a voice not my own that's like wearing a mask, and it's it's empowering. You know, it's a, there, there's certain things, I mean, you know, this is an actor, there's mm. certain things, qualities about a character or a scene or maybe a coat you wear or a piece of jewelry that turns you into that person. And now that, that, that personality gives you permission to do the thing, mm. which you would never do as Ash or that I would do as Michael, you know. And there were certain So I obsessed over that as a kid because I had that. That was my innate relationship to my voice was I am not comfortable speaking, but if I'm someone else, then I can speak. And so I, you know, I used to watch PBS all the time, <laughs> so I would get all these British dialects down. My parents both had very unique Texas accents, which I obsessed over because my mother was from Houston, which is a very different accent than my father's, who's East Texas Texan, Vansanta County. So my dad sort of sounds like, you know, your typical fucking redneck. <laughs> and my mother sounds like that in Houston, in Texas, where they're going to over-enunciate the end of words to make sure that you distinguish from those savages in the Cedar Belt. Um, You know my brother was like he's about nine years older than me like he married into a family of Bostonian Italians I don't even know what the fuck his accent anymore, but it's hilarious and so I would just pick up these accents and throw it back at them and It gave me a weird kind of confidence because I was like I was so much better at other people's voices than my own (laughs) and uh, Which all came to bear when my friend called me up and he was like, I want you to try this voice out You know, he wanted me to just sound like me That's usually why you get work in, in voiceover is like they just like how you sound they want a real grounded read mm. and it really took a lot to learn how to just act like the hardest acting job i've ever gotten was, to be yourself was to just be you yeah and to just do the thing just say the words as yourself and it was it was rough going uh at first but you know again someone believed in me and i was like i mean he basically he didn't take no for an answer and he kept pestering me to come in and i finally relented and did and I was like, oh, whatever, it'll be. I'll be some dude in this anime show that no one's going to fucking watch and whatever. Mm -hmm. It's why, incidentally, why I'm credited as J. Michael Tatum because in Dallas, there are so many Michael Tatums. (laughs) I don't know why. None of us are related as far as I know. But they're just, it's such a common name that I was like, well, can we go? Because my first name is
0: John. I've never gone by it. Family's always known me as Michael. So uh, that's why you moved to LA because you were tired of there being so many John Michael Tatums. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I got to go where there's no more Michaels. Yeah.
1: and so I went by J. Michael Tatum because there was an actor in the same in the first show I was part of whose name was R. Bruce Elliott. It was just like, it was the first actor, first colleague I met in person who was very encouraging and I was like I like the initial. Mm. I'm going to be Jay Michael Tatum. I didn't fucking know it was going to become a thing. <laughs> I didn't know I'd be doing this 20 years later and be known as J. Michael Tatum. And now everyone just thinks I'm pompous, which I mean they're not wrong, but <laughs> I don't exactly not broadcast it. But anyway, so I you know I started doing voiceover stuff on the side. You know I was had my my, my accounts management marketing job uh, for seven years, and and for three of those years, two or three of those years, I was kind of juggling that and the voiceover stuff. Um, it was kind of in the wilderness years of, of anime dubbing uh, in Texas where it was like yeah we could work on the weekends you can come on the weekends you come in on Saturday come in Sunday that's fine it's not really the case anymore it was it's far more rigid and 9 to5 but in those days it was kind of like you know there's five studios we're working on six shows come in and you know we'll do we'll do night recording for you because if a director like you they'd, they'd come in whenever they, they could get you and uh, that's how it happened and I just again um, after several a couple of years of just being used a lot uh, because I had a knack for it. I had a weird talent for it. The technical concerns were very easy for me. I could act uh, or easier for me than I would suspect they'd have been. And so I could act organically through the rigid restrictions of having to, you know, work with pre-existing animation, which is a very, which is a challenge. I had a knack for rewriting lines in the booth that that weren't, you know, that didn't quite work or didn't have enough words or had too few or too many. you know, I had a knack for all those things because I had, on, had for years been cultivating these abilities without even realizing that's what I'd been doing, you know, by not only you know, focusing on always having to think more about my voice and how I sound than perhaps other people do uh, because of how self-conscious I am about how I speak, um, but also just you know, musically, all these things came to bear in this perfect weird little niche industry that was super fun. I mean, it was like... There's a scene in the movie Gods and Monsters with Ian McKellen and Brennan Fraser from like the 90s, and it's one of my favorite films. And there's a moment where he's asking James Whale. Uh, the the guy that made uh, that created Frankenstein and the Bride of Frankenstein films that have become iconic, and the, f- the film is about toward the end of his life and, and the last days of his life and his his, his friendship with uh, this gardener, this young kid who's kind of lost, who works for him, and they have this beautiful kind of mentor troubled uh, mentor uh, mentee relationship, and in one point he's asking him Brendan Fraser, asking Ian McKellen like, do you miss it? Do you miss? You know, because he's so cynical about Hollywood. He's like, oh, I don't know. I've turned my back on all of that. And, and and he finally, in a moment of weakness, he just kind of turns to him, and it's always stayed with me. It's a long walk, forgive me. But he just kind of says, he says, oh, no kidding, there's nothing like it in the world. <laughs> <laughs> Working with friends all day, entertaining people, you know, it's fucking great. And that's kind of what it felt like. And so I had this taste on the side of, you know, doing this weird little thing that kind of hit all my creative buttons that made me feel, that kind of, sort of finally realized all these weird talents I had and combined them in a way that made perfect sense. And it, uh, you know, it's, I think I'd spent most of my life feeling like I'd missed that train. And then there I was, you know, doing it and I was like, Oh, this is exactly, I'm glad I waited because this, this train is nice. This is a very nice train. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the seats are great. <laughs> and, and then there I had a decision to make that I stay with the secure job with, Healthcare plan and and you know it was not a lot of money but for me in those days it was a lot i made like 40k a year um which in texas and in the early aughts was was a small fortune for someone that was used to working in bookstores (laughs) and just going from odd job to odd job and also working in the theater i mean 40k i felt like a millionaire (laughs) and um but I had to, you know, I wasn't fulfilled in that job at all. And I became less and less fulfilled the more of the voiceover stuff I did on the side. And some director up there was like, Man, when are you going to go full time so I can use you during the day? Because I can't come on the weekends.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: I was like, I don't know. Ah. And then uh, it just so happened. <clears throat> Voiceover is odd. As you know, acting in general is weird. There's no just being an actor. You have to do a hundred things. You have to wear all the hats in order to make any one of them work. Mm. And in, in our business, in the, the time, anime dubbing was like, well, then if you wanted to act full-time you also had to do something else and it helped if that something else was related to what you were already doing so hey can you write we need writers Um, and and hey could you want to direct you know the show you're in it uh, and I it happened I was out with some friends we're all working on the show together um, and uh, the one of them was the line producer and uh, which is kind of the the person in charge as far as you're concerned and um, she was like, "Hey, so the the show's director, he got an offer in New York. He's gonna leave, and we need someone to finish out the season. And I can't because I'm already working on this other thing. You're in the show, um, like as one of the main characters. Do you just want to direct yourself, and then direct some other people, and just to help me out?" And I was like, "Yeah, like it, I just said it before. I really thought about what that meant, because then I had to go and be like, I just said yes to that. And I just said yes to that. And I, if I, I can't, I can't renege because I'll never work again if I do that. And I'm not gonna go tell." The people the like, next day I had to go have a really difficult conversation with my boss at the agency and be like, "Hey I'm going to be leaving in two weeks." Wow why was that a difficult conversation? Because I look at everything you're giving up. I mean my God it's like yeah the trade-off is sure work is unfulfilling it's work there's reasons <laughs> all the work you know but it was it was a steady paycheck it was it was a, a health care plan. my God, all those were going to be on me now. Um, you know, I was going to go, I'd never done a gig to gig kind of job. I had no idea how to navigate it. And that's what most creative jobs are. I was like, okay, well, I I know that I'm going to at least have a show to work on as a director for, you know, four months. But what happens after that? you know, will I make enough money in that time to to fill the gap? Um, if nothing comes, you know, what, what's going to, I don't know. It was a complete leap of faith, which I am not inclined to make. Um, I am a very, like Brandon, who you had on your last interview, uh, my fiance, I am a risk averse person. Mm. And um, if you can't tell from my body uh, <laughs> language, <laughs> sorry, I'll loosen up a little bit. Um, <laughs> I'm a very risk averse person, uh, but the, the, the siren song of getting to do this and just take that leap, there is still a part of me that's always been like, fuck it. Fuck it, <laughs> just do it. That was the part of me that dropped out of conservatory when yeah. I was terribly unhappy. Um, you know, there was some little part of me, and I think that voice gets stronger the more you ignore it. Um, and i had been ignoring it for so long that finally it was like, fuck it! And uh, so I was like, do you want to? I'm like, yes, I want I, there, it's out, sorry. Yeah. And then I went down and, and had a wonderful conversation with my then boss, wonderful man named John Murphy, may he rest in peace. And I was like, hey, John, and this this is a man who really bent over backwards to to get me where I was in that company and and I loved him and he I, you know I was kind of heartbroken to tell him like you know I thank you but I I gotta go do this thing mm. and he was like you fucking do <laughs> I was like Thank you. And and I did, and and here we are. And it's just been a weird ride ever since. It's been 20 years, the better part of 20 years, I think it's, it'll be 20 years next August. Wow. Uh, that I've done it, and I haven't worked an honest job since. Wow. <laughs> and it just blew up. It became a thing. Um, you know, I've always been self-conscious about how long it took me to, to get to where I could just be like, this is what I am, this is what
0: I'm doing. Mm. And as far as being able to say it or like having the credentials to back it up, you probably had the credentials to back it up a lot sooner than maybe,
1: maybe, mm-hmm. I, you know, that th- you bring up a good point. I don't think I ever thought about it in terms of credentials and like how what did I have a resume to show for it? But I just was like, no, am I am I the sort of person that would do this? Am I the sort of person that could think sort of? Yes. And their way through <laughs> yeah. life. And uh, you know, and I had a wonderful, I have a wonderful teacher named Steven Anderson, who's my mentor, uh, Brandon's as well. And uh, you know, he's that kind of guy that could just like look at you and just you just you're so seen in that moment in a way that's almost embarrassing. Mm. He just, and he just smiles. He's like fucking sitting across from Merlin, and he just like you're on your journey. It's you. It's taking you exactly as long as it as it's needed to. And that's an important thing to remember because you know there are days when what I do now feels like work. Feels like the thing I would leave if I had another outlet, you know. And I find myself again in that in that kind of past. You know, I've been doing this for so long that there there aren't many surprises left for me, um, which is not a bad thing. I don't mean to to be sound cynical. I'm not. I love what I do, but it's not as fulfilling uh, as it's not the adventure it used to be yeah. for me because I've just done it for so long. You know, and so it's become like any other job. You know, there was a point when. Someone came to me and said, hey, do you wanna do accounts management? And I had to be like, sure, that <laughs> sounds interesting. I'll give it a shot. And that's kind of how I've done everything in my life. I've just been kind of, I, I, am, I think I am where I am today because of people who believed in me, um, or at least took the time to help me believe in myself, which is not easy to do. Yeah, um, how long did it take you to believe in yourself? Oh, do you I'll, believe in yourself I'll let now. you know when I get there. Uh, <laughs> No. I don't believe in myself. I believe in the work that I do. Um, I'm a big uh, advocate for giving it away. Like, I I do what I do because someone needs it, I feel like. And that sounds kind of highfalutin, but you know i mean as i you know this as an actor like you're frequently cast in a show that you're not the target audience mm-hmm. for you're like i'm never going to watch this show it's not my bag you mm-hmm. know and it's that's, that's fine that the, the people it is for deserve the best i can do that's the job and that's the kind of gig i'm actually more interested in is because that's more of a challenge as an actor to be like to a show that i'm not i don't want to say not into but a show that i'm like yeah this is just not this is not for me but but i have to make it it's no longer, it can't be about me at all now because this isn't, this isn't my show. This isn't, I'm not, this is not meant to speak to me. This is meant for someone else and they really need this and I'm, I got the job, that's the hand I pulled and here I am. And I love that because it gets me out of my head. Um, it's, you know, it's, like being, it's the equivalent of being outward directed on stage, you know, you're like, we're not really worried about when am I going to say my next line, you're just fucking. it's a natural outcropping of just listening and uh when you're an actor i think it's really voice acting is so difficult i've done every kind of acting in my life at one point or another on camera tons of stage Uh, and of course voice acting professionally for almost 20 years and i find that when it comes to being in a booth in front of a mic and having to breathe life into these words when you're not in with anyone else i mean it's very rare that we record ensemble um, it happens occasionally, but not much. And after COVID, fucking forget it. Um, just doesn't happen. Uh, and so you have to, you know, when you think about it this way, when you're on stage or you're in front of a camera, there are elements of that experience that kind of help make the the fiction real for you. Like there's a costume, there's another actor. You're having real emotions because that person just said a thing, and you reacting to it you don't have that in the booth as a voice actor you're completely on your own we had this discussion before you said it's all technique and that's a that's a great way of looking at it but the technique comes from like well you have to listen I mean that's the whole point of acting right that's the whole the, your best work comes from just listening and letting everything else just be you know um, I think it was out the late great Alan Rickman uh, who was a hero of mine who said like an actor's job is not to speak. That's incidental. The words you say are just there to show that you've done your actual job, which is listening. So that the words are a reaction to the fact that you, what the fuck did you just say to me, mm-hmm. kind of thing. And so you have to react to nothing. You know, you're in there. You just have a script, and you have to. It's it's acting on a whole other level. And it sounds self-aggrandizing. I don't mean that. I mean it's difficult um, because it's like being told it's like being a master carpenter and hired to build a house, but you only get to use one tool. And that house still has to do all the things that a normal house would do. The doors
0: have to close. The windows have to insulate against the cold. Everything. And you have a hammer. That's all. Uh, no, I, I, I get what that's like. Because sometimes when I'm doing an audition and I have a reader that's not giving me anything, I'm like, crap. i got to figure it out on my own. i got to react and pretend like this person actually affected me. <laughs> right. So that's probably what voiceover acting is like. Right. Yeah. You get us to help you read. Uh, help read for yeah, sometime. Know, right? We're good at it. It's what we do. Yeah. Um, I'll give you
1: friends and family rate, <laughs> but but that's but again um, I forget how we started on this journey. Forgive me, uh, but that's I think I'm a I'm good at what I do as a voice actor because I've always had to listen in order to speak. Um, I've never had the luxury of just being the first to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't do it. I can't. I have to be asked a question. I have to be something has to prime the pump uh, for me, uh, and it's always been that way. And it's a gift in a way because it makes me very prone and I'm so used to doing that that when I'm when the person I'm speaking to is completely imaginary. They're still 100% real for me Yeah, you know, and that that's what it is. You know, was it Sandy Meisner that yeah, said Meisner. Like, totally living truthfully in imaginary, imaginary circumstances, circumstances. That's right. voice actors just have to do it in a sensory deprivation tank
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So over those 20 years uh, what Challenges have you had, or has it been a pretty smooth path for you? No, no. no okay. God. Sounds no, like, oh, no. I, I just did it. <laughs> hey, it's, when I, I, I they're, 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 they're challenges. I mean, they're huge
1: challenges. I mean, they're, they're a certain level of, of, um, sounds so pretentious, but well, a certain well, level has of. Has
0: there ever been times where you're like, oh, gosh, I'm not going to make enough money. I think I should do accounts management again. Yeah. Oh, really? Oh, okay. yeah. Yeah. Maybe
1: not accounts management, but (laughs) but something. But something that I was like, man, I gotta get the fuck out of this. There's, yeah, there's dry spells. Mm. It's always feast or famine in this business, you know. And there've been times when, um, you know, in in recent years, I've found that uh, I'm having to compete with my own resume. Mm. You know, as a voice actor, I'm I'm a pretty well-known quantity uh, in the industry, and uh, at least in in my weird little niche of video game and anime stuff, and and some commercial. So that I'm a name, and it it, there. I wish this upon you because I think it's a sign that you've arrived. I hope one day you get an audition and someone and your name is in there in the specs. Like we're looking for, <laughs> for an, an Ash Tea type. Yeah, and then you don't get that on and then you don't <laughs> land that role like, Apparently I'm not as yeah. good as I you know, I'm I'm not the best J. Michael Tatum anymore <laughs> But you know, there is a point where you're kind of competing against your own resume when you're successful
0: in anything and where you are Totally I've seen that someone was telling me that the for Mindy Kaling there was a part for Mindy Kaling She auditioned and one of her friends auditioned. They both didn't get it <laughs> You're competing against it your own resume, and it, 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 it sometimes it. Yeah. directors,
1: you know, a director doesn't want to cast you because they're like, ah, oh, you're too, you're too easy a choice. That's mm. an easy pick. Everyone can see that coming from a mile away. And there's always an impulse with certain directors that they want to surprise the audience, mm. and that's that's a good impulse to have. I don't blame them for wanting to do it, but you know, so I, so they, they don't, you know, even though that might. There was a time, especially in the in the anime dubbing world, where it was like if the character wore glasses and sounded smooth, slightly British, and was kind of an asshole, like bitch, go home. I got this. This is my role. <laughs> And, and that's kind of how it was. It was like, this is clearly the Tatum character. So I, it was just, but that was how it was. It was all, we were all friends. We all knew each other and it's, just, it's only been in the past like five or maybe 10 years that it's blown up to where it's just glutted with talent. Um, it used to be, you know, there was like 20 of us. <laughs> And we played everything because that's we were the only ones to do. Now you're up against
0: actors, and now
1: I'm against up against you know other actors who grew up listening to me. um, Or or no, even just actors that aren't even other actors who are trying to get into voiceover because because it's it's blown up the way it has, and and it's great. I love the competition. I, I think it's fun. I love I love watching other. I never get. It's And I can say this, uh, you know, and be 100% real, like I've never lost a role and been mad about it. Because mm. like, if I'm that interested in roles, because I really like the character, and often it's not, if I'm not the one playing it, somebody I know who I consider a good friend is, and I'm not gonna hate on them yeah. for working, and frequently, I'm like, "Oh, I'm so fucking glad they got this. because they made some choices I wouldn't have made, and I think
0: that character is far better served with this person at the helm than me." Um, You're a much bigger man because when I see my friends get something I'm like, "I could have done a better job," come on. I mean, there are some <laughs> no. there are some people I feel that way
1: about, of course. <laughs> but for the most part, you know, it's it's. Um, yeah, I don't watch a lot of what I do uh, yeah. afterwards because for me, the experience is just the the you know applying my trade in the booth. And maybe yeah. later, I mean, there might be a few things I've done that I, I think that I am the target audience for and I'll watch and show off to people, but it's still hard for, for me to watch and hear myself. I don't like doing it. It's it's weird. Do you have that problem when you're like, do you want to watch on-camera stuff? Or do you're like, no, nah, the camera loves me. The camera loves yeah, me. I mean, it does. <laughs> um, I wish I had that. I don't have that. Uh, I don't think I'll ever have that, but eh, say you uh, it's small price to pay, I think. But, uh, but yeah, I, some of the challenges are, again, there's this sort of myth. It's not entirely a myth, uh, so forgive my use of the word. But there's this myth that you know there's work, and then there's your there's you're following your bliss, you know, mm. as Joseph Campbell might say. And but at some point, following your bliss becomes work, uh, if you're not careful. Right. Or not even if you are, it just happens. Eventually, you become you know that thing where. You're like, oh, I'm doing the thing now and it's no longer as fulfilling as it was and now something else. But one of the great things about being creatively minded and I think why it's so good and and I think vital for people to cultivate the creative side of themselves, whatever, however that manifests. And if you fucking knit or crochet or something, that's creative, do it. That's who you are. And at some point, the the boredom or the lack of fulfillment that you begin to feel in there can fuel your desire to jump into something else. Now I find myself focusing on my music for the first time Mm. in 20 years. Um, because I, I'm comfortable enough professionally that I can kind of, not I don't want to say rest on my laurels, but I'm resting on my laurels. And uh, you know—and and so I'm like, oh, I've, I've got some, you know, I've got, I've got time and the relative financial freedom to sit, and I'm like, oh, sit there and fucking compose a piano concerto, or, or whatever, and just, just kind of fuck around and see, fuck around and find out, as they yeah. say. And I think that's what the important thing is. I think it's important not to over-romanticize the other side that, yeah. you're, that, you're, that you're, you feel you're sacrificing for. Because there, there's some truth to that, but it's also, it's anything you do for any amount of time becomes work. Yeah. And you know, they say, follow your passion, and absolutely you should, but you don't always know what your passion is until you've tried it first. And so something other than passion has to drive you. Um, or something other than passion has to keep you there because I think passion is just Mother Nature's way of getting you interested yep. and then but then it leaves it, then it's gone it totally. does its job you know and then you're on the journey on your own and you have to find other resources to keep you there um, in my case it's it's the, what drives my self-discipline is the is my belief that what I'm doing matters to someone even mm. if it's someone I'll probably never meet who might hear or watch that show. And it's not that I, as an actor, brought that character to life and it could only be me. It's the character that matters, and I'm just the one that had the responsibility to give it life. But somebody needed to hear that, you know I mean? Think about what we do as actors. Um, I, I think all artists do this. I think people rely on us. Um, I'm gonna get really big and pretentious and full of shit here, but but I believe this all the same. It's. We are there to give people the sort of experiences that they spend all day, every day, protecting themselves from. You know, no one wants to be heartbroken. No one wants to be in a life or death situation. No one wants to, you know, have that conversation with their boss, uh, you know, about what a piece of shit they are and then store them off. But those are the stories that we need to see. Those are the the those are the, the artwork, the, the things that, that mean something to us that everyone can relate to. And we can only do that by... By kind of forcing people out of their comfort zone, which means getting out of our comfort zone, and mean like, no, we've, we've got to do the thing. I think it was David Mamet who said something. I'm paraphrasing, but he said, like, no one gives a shit if you're good at pretending to be brave. What an audience wants to see is you commit to finding out in real time if you are. Mm. That matters. And so I can go in the booth on a really good day. And whether I believe in the work... Um, or the show, or, or my own abilities, I know that there is someone out here that needs me to commit to what I'm feeling right now so that it will feed into the performance that will do something for them that, that I can't even imagine. It's two hours of work for me. It may be life or death to them. You never know. Um, frequently, it may not be. But there's one person out there that needs to see it. And, you know, because there's an element of being an actor, being any creative, especially a gainfully employed one. Um, that you feel like, man, does what I do matter or am I just a blunt instrument being used by some fucking CEO to <laughs> sell, you know, Teslas or what the fuck? <laughs> um, you know, and there's always an element of that. But also it matters on a personal level because on, on, in some way someone needs to see what you're doing. And you need to have that experience. It's about personal transformation. And that's, for me, the creative path. For someone else, it may be tilling the land. For someone else, it may be crocheting. Um, so whatever that is, I think it's important to, to have that journey. I think following a, a, for it to be this sort of idea, this sort of pearly gates that are waiting for you, if you'll just say no to the thing you no longer want to do and you make that jump, and it's fine. It's the jump that matters, I think. Not because the net will necessarily appear. I don't, I don't <laughs> it may necessarily believe that, yeah. Though in my case it always has, but yeah. I can't believe it because it takes out the stake yeah. and removes yeah, yeah, the stakes, yeah, yeah. and it makes it, if it, when it becomes easy, it's not as meaningful anymore. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I waited a long time to to be here, and I've I still refine what I think about what I do for a living and how I got here and how I don't feel it's hard to acknowledge it sometimes because I don't feel like I own it um, because I don't uh, you know I got here I this I, my drive and ambition did not bring me here mm. um, my my passive interests and the belief of other people who had drive and ambition for on my
0: behalf is what got me here. Um, So if you look back on your life, would you ever give your younger self any advice? Or are you (laughs) thinking, everything kind of worked out for me? Oh no, I'd I'd have so much to say to my younger self.
1: I I think the one thing I would tell myself is like, I know you're not gonna believe me, but you have time. Mm. Um, You have time. it's weird. I, I, don't, I also don't want to deprive my young self of the journey he's been on. Uh, one, he, I know him. He wouldn't fucking listen to me. Uh, <laughs> but two, like, I needed that. I needed that journey, you know, um, painful as it was, uncertain as it was. I can look back on it now from a relative place of privilege in my career and say that, you know, um, that's where my best work has always come from as an artist, whether I was getting paid for it or just doing it for me or for, you know, my grandfather. Um, you know, it's, it's, we try it as actors, we're kind of, I think as people in life, we're kind of conditioned to downplay those things about ourselves that we don't like, our doubts and, you know, our anger, fear, all that stuff. But I, I think of those, I think I've had to come to think of those qualities as necessary. I think all of your best work as an artist comes from those places, um, you know, that's when it matters because I don't know if I'm going to be good. I don't know if I'm going to make money doing this it, day to day. I, I don't know where I'm going my career is going to be in, in a week, uh, let alone a year, let alone 10 years. You know, uh, my voice is going to change. I get older. All the young bucks are coming in and taking all the roles I used to get because I'm too fucking old <laughs> to play those characters anymore. Well, hopefully someone will write a character that's age appropriate. You know, what's that going to be like? What's mm. that level stage of my career going to be like? I don't know. I don't know. But all I know is that my fear about those things, my my doubts, my resentments, all the negative things are there. They're fueled, they're grist for the mill, they're, they're mine to use. Um, so I don't bother masking them anymore. I just embrace them. And I'm like, cool, I have no fucking clue what I'm doing. <laughs> and that's what I do. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, it's very Zen-like, and I, I don't mean to sound like I'm some kind of Zen master, because I'm certainly not that. Uh, but... You know, I don't know. I say embrace your doubts. Embrace your uncertainties. You know, uh, say With yes. Open arms. Say yes because you don't believe it. Mm. Um, because it's that act of faith, I think, that, that will propel you forward. Who cares if you believe in it? Uh, just fucking do it and see. You know, I think, again, I, it's not about believing in yourself so much as it is about believing in the work. I'm like, well, you know, someone's got to do it. And if I don't do it, then someone else is being deprived of what I could do, uh, Maybe. Maybe who knows? Um, yeah, I'm not yeah. sure if I've landed any points. <laughs>
0: I tend to be like Bruh. lots of lots of words of wisdom. <laughs> well, uh, I'm curious to know, like before we head out here, what were your favorite voices to perform, and would you care to do a two or three minute monologue with your different voices? A two to three minute monologue? Oh my God! Uh, five minutes. What are you told? Ten minutes. Five minutes. minutes. <laughs> Jesus. Oh my God! All right. I have, ten I've seconds. had some. Fa-
1: I'm very lucky. I've had some favorite moments. I, uh, um, I think Brandon alluded to this in your last interview, but a show that was really big for me was a show called Black Butler, and it's a weird little goth uh, show, and I play a demon butler. And he's very British and very suave. And I love doing that voice. It's so he's such an easy character to play because he never emotes. He's very British, so it's mm-hmm. all buttoned up, and it's all sort of airy because he's a demon, he's a creature of the air, you know. So it's all very sort of up here in the voice, and you know, yada yada yada, and it's it's hilarious. Like everyone else in that show has the worst time because everyone else is, gets mad and screams and fights, and I don't do any of that. I just have to be sexy sounding. And I love it. But I also love that accent, and it's also a love letter to the person that helped me find my voice. She was British with that sort of received pronunciation. That's so why I can fall into it so easily because it's sort of how I learned to talk, and uh, you know, so that's the voice, and you know, fans everywhere love it, and they scream at you when you do it. And <laughs> <laughs> it's never going to get old. Um. But very recently, I had a there's was a, another big show of mine that I uh, really like. I am the target audience for this show. Is Attack on Titan, mm. and uh, I got to play Commander Irwin Smith, who's a very uh, one of the one of the. <sighs> I flatter myself, one of the best damn characters in the show. Um, <laughs> and just the, He's just well-written. Mm. And uh, he it's one of those shows where everyone, spoilers, fucking everyone dies. Like, don't, at some point, I think there's something like 70 principal characters in that show at some point. It's like Game of Thrones. Wow. Like, don't, don't fall in love with anyone. The chances are they're not going to make yeah. it. Um, it's a gruesome, gruesome show. And there's, after being on the show for, like, three seasons, four seasons, uh, which is an eternity for anyone on that show to mm-hmm. have lived that long he's one of like only five characters that have done it uh, he died and and he had this great death speech which I will not do for you because uh, <laughs> it's far too close and I will fucking cry and I also blow out the mic because it's very loud <laughs> but that was one of my favorite moments in the mm. booth of, of getting to do that speech because i knew it was coming i'd worked on the show as uh, an adaptive writer for the first couple of seasons so i'd read ahead and the, and the material and the manga that it's based on and knew that oh at some point he's gonna die and one of my best friends was the director so i'd come in every day and uh, mike mcfarlane is his name and uh, you know he's very he's not the most effusive director in the world like he's very good but you're not gonna get this oh that was amazing He's just not that guy. He'll be like, "Yeah, good, moving on." <laughs> it's very militant, which worked for that show. It's very military. It's about a you know a military unit, and um, every week of that season, I wouldn't know is this the day? Is this this the day that I'm going to have to fucking kill off this character that I've been playing for seven years? Um, you know, four seasons, seven years, and uh, you know had been with me a part of that, and I loved playing him. He was a great character. I fucking enjoyed it. I really helped me tap into the thing, some things into myself that I don't often get to do, and. Uh, I went in, and every day I'd be like, is it, is it today? Is it today? And he'd be like, no, the fuck? No, get the, idiot. You know, and then I'd do it, whatever. And then finally I came in one afternoon, and he was like, hey, how you doing? Are you doing okay today? And I'm like, it's <laughs> today, isn't day. it? He's like,
0: yes.
1: <laughs> and he has this great speech. I don't want to give too much context, but um, he basically knows that he's gonna—he's leading everyone to their death. It's the only chance they have. of this one person surviving that needs to survive and uh, for reasons. And, uh, and he knows, he knows he's gonna die. He knows everyone he's talking to is about to die. And, and he tells them this, he's a, he's a great leader. He's like, we're gonna fucking die. His, his speech boils down to like, we're gonna die, but we're gonna die doing something that fucking matters. Mm. And it's such a beautiful moment. And he dies giving that speech as they're all charging forward, because he never stops. Um, you know, he's talking to them as they're getting on the horses. He's not like, go do it, he leads the charge. And it's such a great, he's such a great character for that reason, he dies. And then he finally, he said the last word of his speech and he fucking dies. Um, it was heartbreaking. We did it in one take, because uh, you know, I'd been waiting, I'd been waiting for this <laughs> moment, just like I imagine he had been his whole career as a, as a military guy, knowing mm-hmm. at some point this is how I'm going to end, mm-hmm. odds are. And Mike and I had a good cry over it. And, uh, you know, then we went out for drinks that night, and like, hey, it was fun, you know, I'm sure we will be back in flashbacks. <laughs> 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 and, uh, um, Yeah, and a few months later when that show that episode aired and it was a big big deal because that character was very loved by the fan base very loved and some people knew what was coming because they'd read ahead some people didn't because they didn't they didn't want to spoil it for themselves so people were really wow this was the big episode and it aired and the outpouring was amazing Mm. people were just like like oh captain my captain kind of thing like you know Brandon and my fiance and I work out and I can't tell you how many dudes at the gym will listen listen to that fucking speech while they're pumping wow. which I think is funny I'm like it just means you're gonna <laughs> die what are you doing um, but like it means something to yeah. them you know it meant something to them and and that's beautiful I love doing that voice it's mm-hmm. a great voice to have too because it's very it's very sharp and loud. And uh, it's great to getting people to move out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> if you ever hear me doing it next door, know that that's just, that's my, that's my okay. commander one voice, but
0: yeah. All right. <laughs> Well, this was a very fascinating speech. Lots of words of wisdom. (laughs) It's one of the few ones where I don't really have to talk much. And it's great because uh, (laughs) I don't have a lot of wise things to say. But you do. And you did. You're very kind. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks thanks so much for coming on board. You know, I always tell people, you know, I believe in you and you should believe in yourself. And so does Michael Tatum. Right? (laughs) I do. I believe in you. Yeah. Just fucking do it.